0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls, instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, my name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation for the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization. And I want to welcome you to the St. Philip Institute podcast, uh, where we talk about current issues, and we put them in the light of faith. Um, what I want to speak about today is is actually uh, something that, that is really central to the life of the Church. A lot of times when we're doing these podcasts, we've got to try and find something that's happening in the world and sort of get at it from a catholic perspective or tie in the catholic faith in some sort of way to make a bridge from most people's daily lives to something that the church holds as you know a doctrine or a teaching um, or some you know something that has to do with catholicism but that it's not obvious at first Uh, today what i want to talk about actually is happening in the real world it is something a lot of people are experiencing um, and is a really important thing in uh, the life of the church so Basically, what I want to talk to you about is the Scriptures. Hopefully, uh, you will recognize that this is a Bible, and what you've got here today is one of the rarest of things, a Catholic with a Bible. Of course, that is meant to be a little bit of a joke. Catholics aren't necessarily known for being Scripture experts, and when when you're in the Bible Belt, uh, you hear a lot that Catholics don't know their Bible. But something really, really neat has been happening over the last month. Uh, If you follow really even any kind of news at all you've probably heard that the number one podcast on the internet in any genre all right so not just in religion but just the number one podcast across the board right now is it's not the Saint Philip Institute podcast but it's the Bible in a year with Father Mike Schmitz uh, that is put together by the by Ascension Press And It's really, really fantastic. Um, I have listened to uh, parts of a couple of episodes. It's really neat. I'm not doing it every day. I'm really not great at uh, subscribing to and sticking with a podcast week in and week out. Uh, But the fact that Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a Year podcast has not just become something that is popular among Catholic podcasts or among podcasts dealing with religion, but across all of them, is really fascinating. It's it's January. Well, now we're in February, but at the new year, lots of people make New resol- new Year's resolutions, things they want to do, uh, something they want to change, something they want to do differently or better in their life, improve themselves in some sort of way. And it's not uncommon for Christians to rededicate themselves to reading the Scripture and, in you know, starting, starting in January, I'm going to read the Bible every day, um, but I've never, I've never seen this number of people turn to the Scriptures uh, like, like we're seeing right now. At least throughout the first, throughout the first month of the year, it's looked like there's a lot of Catholics who are trying to read the Bible in a year. Um, so what I wanted to do today is, is actually talk a little bit about, um, a little bit about my own personal testimony and background with regard to Scripture, and then about. What it was that I learned um, in my formation process when I was in the seminary, and also when I continued was working on my master's degree in in Scripture, actually at Notre Dame Seminary. Um, And and what's like the key insight that I grabbed out of that process that I that I like to try and share with people whenever I get a chance to. Um, So first, you know, just a little bit of background. This this is a Bible that. I have not had my whole life, not even since my first communion or when I was confirmed. I bought it, I think I was married when I bought this Bible, right? So I I have not always been someone who really just loved the scriptures. In fact, when I was in my confirmation preparation class in high school, uh, I had uh, a sponsor. It was a a lady that my mom knew, a friend of the family. And all of the events we went to, you know, I would have to have uh, meetings with her and we would get a little a, a little discussion guide, questions we were supposed to ask each other and, you know, to kind of guide that awkward conversation between a teenager and an adult that they're probably not really familiar with, really comfortable with, to try and, you know, smooth, like uh, break the ice a little bit. One of the classes, though, they, they pulled uh, um, a surprise on us. We, we sat across from our sponsor and they gave us a list of questions, which was a pretty common thing. And then they told us that you had to switch and go talk about these questions with somebody else's sponsor. So I wound up, um, instead of Miss Cespedes, who is my sponsor, I had to go talk to Mr. Zalasco. And, and the only thing I really knew about Mr. Zelasco was that uh, his wife was Irish, and a lot of people thought his wife was a nun, because she was always talking about the rosary, and she wore, she wore a rosary, and they were like an exceedingly Catholic family, uh, especially in, in Mississippi, where there are not that many Catholics. One and a half percent of the population in my diocese was Catholic. Um, they were they were exceptionally, extremely Catholic. Uh, that's what I thought of of, of their family. That and I knew almost nothing about them, so I had to go talk to Mister. Alasco, and and we got this list of questions, five, six questions we're supposed to talk about for ten minutes or whatever, and he says. I'm not going to ask you any of the questions on this sheet. I'm going to ask you one question, which already that got my attention. Wow, this, okay. He's not doing what we're supposed to, and he only wants to ask me one question. What 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 question could it be that's so so central for him? And he just looked at me straight in the eyes and said, have you ever read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? All of it. And I... I wanted so much to tell him yes, I had read the Bible because it's really embarrassing when you're a teenager and you're in confirmation class to admit that you've never read the Bible. I didn't even have one of my own, okay? That's where I was in my faith at the time. I went to church on Sundays and that was about it. But confirmation seemed like a good idea or at least something I shouldn't run away from, but I couldn't tell him yes. I had to say, no, I've, I've never read the Bible, except that whole thing about going to Mass, and if you go to Mass every Sunday for three years, you read the whole Bible, which is really is not true. You read a, a certain portion of it, but there's a lot of the Bible that's not covered in the readings at Mass. Anyways, I had to tell Mr. Zelasco, no, I've never read the Bible. And then he asked a follow-up question, have you ever read any other books in your life? And I said, yes, I had read some books for school you know, maybe a couple for my own uh, joy. Uh, I read a book about how to beat Super Mario World on Super Nintendo. I hadn't read much, wasn't much of a reader, but I had read some books, but not the Bible. And he talked with me for about 10 minutes and he said, basically, God is the author of the Bible. He wrote one book and he wrote it for you. And he wrote it for all of us, for everybody and when you die, I don't know, he did say that, I don't know, but I bet God's going to want to know, did you read my book that I wrote you? And how's it going to feel if you have to tell him no? And it scared me so much, and I felt such so, so ashamed, and maybe that's not the best evangelical tactic, but boy... When I heard those words, I went home and I found my mom. My mom had a Bible that she was given when she was young. It was leather-bound. It was a Protestant Bible, so it didn't even have all the books in it. And when I re- went to peel it off the shelf, it it was like I had to rip it off of the shelf. And I thought I had torn it because it made such a loud noise, but I didn't do any damage to it. It wasn't this one. It was a different one. And I tried to read it. I tried to read the entire thing. Um, it was January, actually, when we had this confirmation meeting. So it was the beginning of the year. And I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole Bible before I get confirmed. And I, I made it way, way past Leviticus. A lot of people get, they say you die Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you can't get through it. I read through Leviticus, got into the Psalms, didn't finish it, uh, read, read the New Testament, but I, I didn't read the whole thing. So fast forward years later in my life, I'm in the seminary and I get to take a class called Methodology of of biblical interpretation, which does not sound exciting. But it was a class about how to go about reading the Bible. And it absolutely changed my life. Uh, Mr. Zelasco certainly changed my life a little bit. He got me motivated, got me going in that direction of at least trying to think about why the scriptures mattered and trying to pay some attention to them. But it was this class that I took with Dr. Brant Petrie at Notre Dame Seminary, Methodology of Biblical Interpretation, that just I can't, I don't think I'll ever be able to give back as much as I received in that class. And it's a really boring title of the class, but what he what Dr. Petrie showed us in that class is this is the way we should approach studying and reading and praying with Scripture. This is a way to help you see the Bible in a in a way that's gonna illuminate its meaning for you. So what I'd like to talk with you now, now that I've shared a little bit of my, my personal testimony, I'd like to spend the, the remaining time to just give you some insights into ways that the average average Catholic, average Christian can get more out of the Scriptures. And it's guided by the principles of the Catholic Church. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I've got a really nice old copy of here I keep in my office, um, there's there's a discussion about Scripture um, in the Catechism from number 101 through 130-something, 130 133, is the Church's teaching on what Scripture is or how to read Scripture, how to approach Scripture, what we believe about it. I want to highlight three keys for interpreting Scripture, and especially the first two. So this actually comes from the Second Vatican Council, the document on sacred Scripture from Vatican II, uh, which is called Dei Veribum is the Latin title, just means the Word of God. And in there, the Council Fathers taught and this is one of the most important documents of the Council. It's one of the shortest also about what do we believe as Catholics about the Word of God. There's a section in there about how we interpret the Scriptures. And anyone who's ever taken the Bible and just tried to read it cover to cover on your own knows that's a very difficult and challenging thing to do. And not everybody is going to be able to crack sort of the code, not, not, not like in a Da Vinci code kind of way, but get into the language and meaning and mystery of what's going on in all these different kinds of books. And one of the reasons is because within the scriptures themselves, which we think of as one book, I mean, you hold it in your hand, it's one book. It's got many parts, though. This is the Old Testament. I'm just going to grab the Old Testament in my hand so you can see how much of the scriptures is Old Testament. Quite a big chunk compared to New Testament, right? But the division goes further than Old and New Testament. There are many different books. In fact, in a Catholic Bible, there are 73 different books and many different kinds of literature. So there's history. There is poetry. There are wisdom books. There's psalms. There's biography in the Gospels. There's letters or epistles that are written from one church leader like Paul to the church at Corinth. There's all kinds of different things going on, and each of them have sort of their own challenges in how do, how do we interpret, how do we know what's going on. Think of this as genres of movies, for instance. You don't, you don't watch a documentary the way that you watch a comedy. And some movies have an altogether unique way that you have to approach them. If you've ever seen the, the movie Memento by Christopher Nolan, it happens backwards, like you're rewinding through the movie. And if you don't know that the first time you watch it, it you won't know it till you get to the very end. I mean, it it is a, a very unique way that you have to go about interpreting that whole story. That kind of same thing happens in Scripture. But the Church gives us three basic principles in Vatican II, and they're also in the Catechism in, in paragraph 112, 113, and 114. And these are the rules. We need to be attentive to the content and unity of the whole scripture, so that the, the unity or the integrity of the entire Bible, that's one rule. Second one is we need to read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. So we need to not just read the Bible by itself, but also put it in conversation with the church fathers, especially the church fathers. Not just the church fathers, but that's an incredibly important group of commentators on the scripture that can give us some real insight into what it means. And then finally, we need to be attentive to the analogy of the faith, which means the teachings of of the faith, of theology, um, and how they fit in with the scriptures. So, on these three rules, so I really want to spend a lot of time on this first one, and maybe it may be that that's the only one that we get to. Because this is what really changed my life and, and the way that I saw the scriptures is to see the unity of the scriptures. So this is an old Christian heresy uh, within the church that the Old Testament, oh, it's so different than the New Testament. It must be a different God and we need to get rid of this Old Testament stuff because the Lord Jesus is so different that it just doesn't, it has nothing to do with what happens here in the Old Testament. That's a very common attitude for people especially the first time they're reading the Bible and you you see so much discussion about war and destruction in the Old Testament if, if you're if you're a typical Christian who doesn't read the Old Testament much and you see that and then you compare it to Jesus saying to turn the other cheek it can be easy to say well what is what does this have to do with with the New Testament but let me tell you it has nearly everything to do with the New Testament not the violence and the and the, the war necessarily but the Old Testament, is very important for understanding the New Testament. And there's one really critical concept that links together the Old and the New Testament, and it's the concept of a covenant, okay? So this is something that, that changed my life, and I, I hope that I can explain it sufficiently for you here, for you to see, uh, and maybe your, your eyes can be opened to see the Scriptures in a new way. Who's the author of the Bible? Mr. Zelasco was right. God's the author of the Bible. He's the principal author who works through the human authors. So human beings composed the words of the scriptures, but they were inspired by God. So God's the primary author of the scriptures. And one way of putting it is that the Lord, because he's omnipotent, right, he can tell a story with history, the way that human beings can tell a story using words. So when C.S. Lewis was writing the Chronicles of Narnia, he has a a story in his imagination, and he puts that story into, he he makes it a reality by, by putting out the words. God has a plan of salvation that he can execute through history. And that's really what the scriptures are trying to capture is, the unity of that plan in the divine vision of God. And what's happening throughout all of the scriptures, Fulton Sheen says it this way, is not that mankind is searching for God, but that God is searching for man. He's trying, God is trying after creation again and again to reach out to us and show us his plan and get us to live in accordance with it. So, God creates in Genesis Adam and Eve with free will, right? And if you've ever made the attempt to read all of the Bible, you know, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you've certainly read the first three chapters of Genesis. In the first two chapters, it's creation, everything's good, and in fact, everything is very good. And then in Genesis 3, that wily serpent comes into the garden and he can cons- he convinces Adam and Eve to disobey the one One of the commandments they begin for they had been told to be fruitful and multiply and don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, right? The fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Well, Satan convinces them, beguiles them, and they eat of the fruit. And then they see that they're naked. They're hiding from God. Sin has entered the world. What's happening in the rest of the scriptures is God is trying to restore that covenant that he made with Adam and Eve. But what's a covenant? Well, we do still use the term covenant um, in, in the 20th century, 21st century, whatever century it is that we're in. In 2021, we still talk about covenants, but, but not very often. We're maybe more familiar with the language of, of a contract. Right, A contract is how you enter into a business agreement with somebody. Contracts have a starting date and an ending date usually, um, and they can, they can be broken under certain penalties. But, but covenants are different. In the ancient Near East, the way that people forged agreements, forged alliances with one another, um, was not through contracts which which were sworn on your own authority. Like when I sign a contract, I put my name on it. A covenant is sworn; you you swear an oath, and the witness of the oath is not you or the other person, but God. Right? Think of matrimony. Think of marriage. In marriage, we swear an oath to, to enter into a new family, and the, the witness of the oath, as far as the church is concerned, is God. Now, as far as the state is concerned, you do sign something, and there's a, a human being witnessing it, but when we enter into a covenant, we swear an oath in the presence of other people, but the ultimate witness of that oath is God. Covenants in the ancient Near East were used to form alliances, to form families, and even to form, you know, business partnerships, but they were understood as being more than just a contractual obligation, like in a business sense. In a covenant, you become family. It creates kinship, Scott Hahn says. Covenants are about kinship, about extending family bonds. Because of that, They don't expire, and the witness for them is ultimately God. So in the Old Testament, when these books were being written, here I'm in the book of Deuteronomy, if you're playing the at-home game, what what page did I just turn to? Deuteronomy 21, Uh, just a random passage. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, well, in the Old Testament, covenants were how things happened in the world. And God utilizes this human instrument of covenants as the way that he would establish his people on earth. So the first covenant is with Adam and Eve. And covenants have lots of features. They don't all, not every covenant has every one of these features, but these are some of the clues that you're dealing with a covenant. And we and we do have, scholars have found many clues Covenant documents from the ancient Near East that that actually document these things. So there's an oath, there's often a sacrifice, there are blessings and curses. There's usually a, a priest or some sort of mediator. Sometimes there's a sacred meal. There's a sign or or a law or a symbol. These are the things that kind of tell you covenant is what's happening here. And when I when I learned about the idea of covenants, and then was taken through the Old Testament. What Dr. Petrie showed us, not just in the the methodology class, but also I got to study the scriptures with him for a few years at Notre Dame Seminary, one of the greatest blessings of my life. What he showed me is that what happens all throughout scripture is God offers a covenant to enter into a family relationship with human beings, to form his people. Remember in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, you will be my people and I will be your God. So the covenants start at creation, where God extends family bonds to Adam and Eve, and he gives them a law. There, there could have been a meal, but the meal is thwarted because sin enters so, so quickly. Then the next covenant is with Noah. Okay, so we've gone from man and wife, a couple, to Noah and his family. The next stage of the covenant is with Abraham who has not just his own family, but sort of a clan. He doesn't have any children, but he is going to become the father of a multitude of nations. The people of God, because God is in covenant with Abraham. You see this especially in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. God is in covenant with Abraham, and through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. That covenant continues to grow as we go beyond Abraham, into Moses. And Moses, right, the great liberator of Egypt, check this out. In Abraham's life, this is in Genesis 11, Abraham goes to Egypt, interacts with the Pharaoh, angers the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh actually says, you are causing me destruction because God sends plagues down on the Pharaoh for, for, with Abraham. And Moses. Abraham has caused such tremendous suffering to, to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh that Pharaoh says to take their riches and go. Abraham goes to Egypt, interacts with the Pharaoh, and then is let out by plagues. Moses does the same thing. You probably remember it better. In the New Testament, Jesus when he is born has to flee because Herod is trying to kill all of the children under the age of 2. Do you remember this? And where do they where do they wind up going? They go to Egypt, right? This is just one example here, but of showing the unity of the Old and the New Testament because what's happening in in Genesis 11 is what is prototypical of what happens in all of salvation history because it's what happens to all human beings. We are called to a relationship with God. We often stumble around and don't quite get it right, and we get caught up in some sort of trouble, some sort of enslavement, and we need God to come set us free from it, right? There's there's an exodus in all of our lives in some sort of way. It's a historical event in the book of Exodus, right? That re- that happened with a group of people at a particular time. But it's also a spiritual event in all of our lives. And this is what the catechism tries to express in paragraph number 129. It's one of my favorite lines in the catechism. It's one of the few catechism numbers that I know by heart. I don't know the line by, line, uh, by heart, but I'll read it to you. As an old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden... In the old, and the old testament is unveiled in the new. Again, the new testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is unveiled in the new. Let me give you one more kind of classic example. I I love this example. So, Catholics, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, maybe you're not as familiar with chapter and verse, but let me read you something that you've heard, hopefully. Every week for many, many years of your life. Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right, that's the Last Supper. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. When is that meal? That Last Supper is a Passover meal. Okay, it's in the context of the memorial of Passover. Now, let me read to you something that happens shortly after the original Passover. The original Passover is when Moses successfully has shown Pharaoh by repeated plagues, especially the death of the firstborn son of all of the Egyptians and all of their cattle, that the Lord God who he serves, I am who I am, the burning bush, that God is the real one in control and not Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finally relents and says, I'm going to let the the enslaved Israelites go. You take our jewelry, our riches, take your horses and get out of here. I finally believe. Shortly after that, the Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai, and this event happens. Listen to this. This is Exodus 24. If you're you're a Catholic and you want to know an Old Testament passage that that would come in handy, Exodus 24, trust me. So this is starting in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances that he had just heard from God, and... All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood He threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then check this out. Verse eight. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you. See, when we understand the unity of the Scriptures, that the Old Testament, if we know the story of the Old Testament, when we go and read the New Testament, all sorts of things are going to jump out to us. We're going we're to realize, ooh, these New Testament authors are really, they're hinting at and pointing back to some really significant stuff that happened to the people of Israel of the Old Testament. And when we knew that, we know the New Testament decently well— We can go back and read the Old Testament and see it with more depth. We can see more of what God is trying to reveal that will one day finally be made clear. So the exodus of Israel with Moses, like that's really big stuff. But it's not as big as being liberated from sin and death in the new exodus, celebrated by the new Lamb and the new Moses of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. This is just one of many examples. We could take any. There's there's so many of them. Genesis chapter 22. I want to I want to challenge you. If you are a Catholic or a Christian and you don't know the Bible well and you don't know the Old Testament well, but you know about Jesus Christ and you know about his resurrection, read the book of Genesis chapter 22, and try and see how much you can understand that verse better, that chapter better when you know what happens in the ministry of Jesus Christ. There's tons more that that I could say here. And this is just a principle, right? That if you know the unity of the scriptures, the, 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 the Old and New Testament will both be easier for you to understand, you will get more out of it. It will be more than just, you know, oh, I crossed it off, I read those pages that day. Let me tell you, when you've put a little bit of time in to see this connection, the scriptures can really come alive in a different way for you. And if that's something you're interested in doing, I want to invite you to join the St. Philip Institute starting on Ash Wednesday. It's not too late to come up with a plan for Lent. It's getting close, but it's not too late. February 17th is the first day of Lent, Ash Wednesday. I want to guide you for 47 days through the scriptures to help you see this, this one key idea about the unity of the Old and the New Testament in a a way that maybe you haven't before. And if you already have, God bless you. That's fantastic. Tell other people. If you're somebody who struggles to read the Bible because you feel like it's just a bunch of really confusing stuff, let us help you with that. I've given you, in this plan, it's it's called From the Beginning, God's Search for Man. And you can find out how to sign up in the the description below this video, or you can go to the St. Philip Institute website. We've got it right on the homepage. In this, this program, From the Beginning, what you'll do is, You have 47 days of scripture readings. You're not going to read the whole Bible. I can't get you through the whole Bible in 47 days, okay? But you will see the big picture stuff. You'll find out what goes on with Adam and Eve. And after you've read a couple of chapters about Adam and Eve, you get a one- to two-page commentary telling you here's some of the stuff you might not know, you might not see, if you're new to reading the Bible this way. You go through Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, some of the prophets, we get to the ministry of Jesus Christ, and what we try to do is show you how all of this stuff fits together. That is one divine plan of God expressing himself in a, as a covenant mediator who wants to give himself in kinship to us, and he, and he des- desperately desires to do that, and that's what he's doing throughout salvation history, and I want you to think of the Bible as one story that all fits together. You just need this a little bit of help, not much. And this can really help you read the scriptures in a different way. So I want to uh, just invite you to join us for this program and and thank you for your time. And please, uh, if, if, if you feel like the Bible is just something you just can't get into, give it a shot. Uh, John Paul II said about praying the rosary with kids, a lot of people put up a lot of objections. There's all kinds of reasons why praying the rosary with children might not matter. Why not try it? There's all kinds of reasons why you might not really be able to get into the Bible, but please try it. I beg you, please try this, because what we've tried to do in this 47-day program is take some of the best insights that we've all learned here, especially that that I've been able to to pick up in my studies uh, at Notre Dame Seminary, and make it accessible to anyone. It's available in English and in Spanish Starts on Ash Wednesday. Please join us. uh, And thank you for your time today. Please follow us on Facebook. You can look at uh, what the St. Philip Institute is up to. We're also on Instagram. And I think our podcast is available on Spotify, or you may be listening on YouTube. Again, I'm Luke Arredondo, Director of Faith Formation. Thank you so much for your time this evening, or whatever time of day it is you're listening. Thanks.